Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Yesterday, the Ugandan government charged musician-turned-member-of-parliament Bobby Wine with treason. After campaigning for an ally in a by-election a week ago, Wine was jailed and beaten. Let's talk about the challenge Bobby Wine puts to Uganda's president, Yoweri Museveni, with Kasule Magala. Kasule Magala was a broadcaster in Uganda before he was jailed and beaten and found asylum in the U.S. Thanks for joining us, Kasule. Is there anything new to you about this as somebody who has been jailed, been beaten, and no. ran away? The only new thing, Jerome, is that there are cameras right now. Video Videos are coming out. If you look at those, the video of that journalist who was being beat up by three soldiers, he's kneeling down. All he has is his camera, and they are beating him. That video would not be there back in the day. Now everything is on record, and that's why you see it, it really saddens. To th- you would think they would change because they know the world is watching, but they've even got worse. If you- why was this by-election so important to Yoweri Museveni? Can you explain its importance? The former member of parliament who was there, Abiriga, was Museveni's darling. He's the one who even brought the motion to change the age limit to t- so Museveni can run again. So Museveni always walked around with him, liked him, gave him one, uh, a couple of guards. So he was a protected guy, but these guys shot him by his home. Now, when, they, when they, they called the new election, the government put their candidate, one of Nusra Tipelu, very young, very brilliant lady. She's a member of East African Parliament. And the FDC got a candidate of their own. Now, Bobby Wine supported an independent. Turns out Museveni spent like a week or two before the election in Arua, making sure he keeps this seat in his quorum. So that's fairly unusual, the president spending a week in a by-election in in Uganda? In Uganda. And Bobby Wine with his crew went up there, supported the independent, and he won. So Bobby Wine was beating both Museveni. And Besige, who are the, we are used to both of them arguing over politics. And Besige is the mm-hmm. um, regular opposition candidate. So, Four times opposition to Museven. So he's um, basically winning, uh, he's beating everybody in the field right now. Yeah, and he has just been a member of parliament for one year. He won in June last year. And in that election itself, there was an NRM candidate there. He was thrown out by the court. So... Bobby Wine comes in, he's 36. Museven has been a president for 32 years. So he was barely a kid when Museven came in. Now they were, they've been going head to head in four different by-elections. And all the four, the candidate Bobby Wine has been supporting has been winning. And not just winning, winning hands down. And these by-elections were in different parts of the country. Bobby Wine was in the central. Then there was one in the east where, where I was Bugiri, and he supported an independent young man. He won hands down. There was one in no, the last one that broke the camera's back was Alua. Well, uh, Bobby Wine's an interesting character. I think people are learning more about him now. We've got one of his songs here, uh, Freedom, which seems to be the galvanizing song that yes. people are playing in Uganda. To the government, government expressing what's exactly on the people's mind. Uganda 
Chituse no kutwenta miekwanga diafe Bolimba mutufuga bubinyo na mwe Kalite tuganye mwana na musiko na ye Kwa mwana kwe wasanga ngata nazari Wakati na ye ya zala ngata Chino mchinga ambire muze ya bamutukako Sabane baze ibane bamugambeko Hene songa nchamu all right, there's Bobby Wine and Freedom. Uh, what's he saying there after he gets out of the English? He's saying that uh, Uganda is not growing. It's stunted. And this song, he played it even before he ran for parliament. So his music has always been there. Here he's saying, he, when Seven was started talking about changing the constitution, he said, you, you came with democracy, now you, all we have is hypocrisy. So his music has been there. He's he's been arrested before. He played a song against the mayor of the city governor of Kampala. Her name is Jennifer, and he said the song goes like, "Tell Jennifer that we are Ugandans. We are in Uganda." And it became so popular. He's been playing music that is more like soul liberation music, and that has caught the eyes of many Ugandans. It's interesting. He's got a kind of a reggae beat, and he's very upbeat and smiley personality. Uh, he's catching a light with the new generation that is is so large and and can do so much damage at the polls. Yeah, and here is a generational difference. So you look at Bessie and Seven, all the guys. They've been arguing. Everybody gets used to it. Now, Bob Wine comes in and is sweeping both of them in every election where they go. So this time around in Arua. They first killed his driver. You know, they should, they, they, after they shot the driver, they went and arrested Bobby Wine and others, and they accused them of treason. Only in Uganda, a guy can be arrested with two guns, if, the, if he had them. Let's assume he had, they were his guns, with two guns, 36 rounds of ammunition, and they said, oh, he was going to overthrow the government. I'm like, seriously, are you that weak <laughs> that a, a government can lose to two guns and 36 rounds of ammunition? What is ultimately, uh, do you think, Bobby Wines and Museveni's strategy? It seems that the next election is pretty far off in 2021. Uh, is there? Does Museveni want to run again? Is there a succession plan in place? Does he have ideas? There is a project which they call Project Mohoz. Mohoz is Museveni's son. Actually, Mohoz is the commander of the elite forces, the one that beat up Bobby Wine. So the com- the competition is two way. Museven, if he runs, he doesn't want to run against a young face. He likes to run against the old guys who are always the same boat. Now, if he chooses to put Mohoz, his son, who is a commander of the elite forces, to run after he leaves, the only competition is coming from these young MPs because they are really, really good. They are so nice on Facebook, on social media. Actually, a few months ago, Museveni brought a new tax on social media. I noticed that. Because, that, that, that yes. sounds crazy, doesn't it? A new ta- <laughs> he, a tax on mm-hmm. social media? He called it Rugambo, which means Lumas. Because these young MPs, the Bobby Wines, Zake, and others, are doing so well because they're on social media. They know how to deal with the new generation. And the older generation is going away. So Museveni is looking at these young guys as a threat, not only to him, but to his son. Mohoz, who is a commander of the elite forces. Actually, after he fired the general who was commanding the police, he brought one of Mohoz's closest friends to be the deputy commissioner of police. So he's been putting his son's proteges within places where if he moves on, his son will be next to take over.
I'm talking with Kasule Magala about what's happening in Uganda and with Bobby Wine, the imprisoned MP who's been just charged with a, um, uh, treason. treason. And uh, Kasule Magala himself was a journalist in uh, in Uganda who was uh, beaten and sought asylum in the U.S. Uh, you know, is, is there um, something the U.S. and the British and the, the European Union can do here? Can, are they going to do anything out of the ordinary? For the first time, I saw the European Union standing up to Museveni because all ambassadors from the European Union went and visited Zake, who was in the hospital. He was the, another MP who was beat up. They wanted to go and see Bobby Wine, but they were denied entry because, according to the family, he had he was bruised. His eyes were beat up. He was up to now. They don't want to show him to us. They just showed us a tiny video of him, like eight second video, when he was laughing with the Speaker of Parliament, and that was different. This is an opposition member of Parliament, tortured by the government, tortured by the elite forces, and the Speaker of Parliament goes to see him, and they even had to wait because the, she, she, the Speaker couldn't get access to Bobby Wine. That shows you how, my, how seriously they were taking this issue. His lawyers, doctors were all bad from seeing him until like five days. I think they were doing some repairs on whatever damage they had done. Eventually, the American embassy and the British embassy issued statements, sent their people to go see him. They were locked out. So that shows you that the game has a little bit changed from seven. Even religious leaders who are notoriously from seven in Uganda came out, it was Idi Aduha last week, so they all came out with statements condemning the torturing of Bobby Wine. And uh, for the first time, I've seen him seven write three articles in three days. Right. Every day he's been writing an, an, another one, another one explaining the situation. But it's all about the unemployment for the yes, youth. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't look, it looks like it got out of hand at one moment. I remember one of the former directors of the military used to be my friend, late Mayombo, one day I was talking to him on the show and we go outside and he goes, no, you see that guy that was Bessie's brother. He's like, I, I, I told the guy to just handle him, money handle him a little bit, but they went too far. Now I have to go tell his dad, your son is dead. So that's how it's been, it's been torture has been part of Museveni's scheme. Only that this time it looks like people woke up and they wouldn't take it. This is Bobby Wine. Everybody knows Bobby. He's always in a show. He's been a member of parliament. He has never stopped doing sh music shows. He's been almost in every dist district in Uganda for music. So he was, he's popular. And the people have this feeling. He's not one of you. He's not one of the fighters. He's not one of the guys we think are chaotic. He looks like an organized member of parliament. All he does is politics and music. You know, it's interesting to look around at the neighborhood in Uganda, and a lot of one-party states are managing transitions. Zimbabwe is managing a transition. Ethiopia is one-party state is managing a transition. Uh, do you think Museveni has the game to manage a transition away from his rule to his son or to some ally? Unfortunately, not. The problem with all most of these dictators is they say we are doing a transition, but they don't believe in democracy in the first place. You cannot do a transition to what? That's why these guys get stuck there. Let me tell you, if Museven lost power today, he knows that he's going to be charged for the crimes he has committed. 
including if you beat up members of parliament inside the parliament and you bring the military, because that's when Bobby Wine became a star, when the military attacked parliament, when they were discussing about extending Museveni's age so he can run again. Bobby Wine stood up. You, you could see him on the tables dancing, punching away, and he made even a song after that. That these guys came beat us, we beat them back, we are here to stay. So they, these them sevens and the same Nangaguas, they've, they've committed so much. They, they, they are practically criminals running governments. Now they are afraid to leave. It's the mafia style. Immediately you hand over power, whoever you hand over power to is going to come after you because he has enough ammunition. From inside your own government, you are afraid to hand over power because these people know you, they know everything. And if you hand over to somebody from outside, he will. the scale of the criminality in this government will shock them. So they are stuck. Yeah, so you think it'll end ugly for Museveni, essentially. I believe so. Kusili Magala is a former broadcaster in Uganda before he was uh, jailed and beaten and sought asylum in the U.S. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good to see you, Kusule. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. One year ago this month, Burmese security forces drove almost all of the Rohingya ethnic group from Myanmar. Tomorrow, four cities will have Save Rohingya Day rallies in the U.S. and Canada. The organizer is the Burma Action Task Force, and it's the only full-time advocacy team dedicated to stopping the Rohingya genocide. Their Chicago rally is in Federal Plaza tomorrow afternoon. Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid is the founder of Burma Action Task Force. Thanks for joining us. Good to talk with you. You're welcome. Good to talk to you, Jim. What do you want to accomplish tomorrow with Save Rohingya Day? What do you want to see done? Well, main thing is the world which has said never again should realize that it is not it is happening every day. I mean, it is the most satellite documented genocide in the world. There are uh, during genocide, before genocide, and after genocide satellite images. We cannot say we did not know. Uh, Rohingyas, 2.5 million are out in different countries, 1 million in Bangladesh. Half a million are still striving inside Burma. The UN is not allowed to feed them. They are not even allowed to visit them. They are indigenous people of uh, Burma. And uh, all they want is security and citizenship, citizenship which was taken away from them, which is the cause of all the problem. So our goal is to educate and inform people. So um, they take some action. And one of the action which is needed is that when it happened, uh, uh, you know, last century uh, at the hand of Nazis and fascists, uh, world came together, established United Nations, have human rights charter, and something called a treaty on genocide. That treaty obligates, and our nations, thank God, is a signatory to that treaty, to stop a genocide and punish those who are committing. Now, I noticed you're, uh, I know you're closely watching what's happening with the State Department, and the Treasury Department has issued some rather strong sanctions against uh, military officials in Burma, and they're coming out with a report that you're watching to see if they use the word genocide or what the, how they position themselves. 
Yes, I mean, the State Department has done extraordinary thing, uh, which what's normally done by independent scholars in Iraq and Afghanistan case when they went and did a public opinion survey to determine the casualties and what happened. This time, the State Department has done into the Rohingya camps, and they have extraordinary 18,000 pages worth of information. Uh, so they know it. And it is a political decision, I think, uh, they should go ahead and announce. U.S. has been one of the largest donors for Rohingya refugees. Uh, But, uh, you know, the Treaty on Genocide asks for calling what it is, genocide, and then preventing it. There are half a million people inside, 2.5 million outside. They need to go back. And U.S. need to take actions and go back to... Uh, to the world when we uh, will take a stand on something like this. Uh, what does that look like if for these people to return to their homes? Because in the past, when just limited amounts have returned to their homes, they've gone into camps that were, uh, I don't know, they'd look like um, detention camps, basically. The New York Times calls them the concentration camps of 21st centuries. In 2012, uh, from the capital city, all the Muslims were wiped out. They were marched by the military to camps, and uh, they are there in those camps since 2012, 140,000 of them. And uh, uh, when a reporter from New York Times, Christoph, visited them, he says uh, they are facing a slow genocide. They're being starved to death. Can you tell us more about the Burma Task Force and what you're doing? I mentioned in the introduction you're the only full-time advocacy team dedicated to the Rohingya genocide. Um, how, how, how can people get in touch with you, learn more about the organization? Well, they can on burmataskforce.org, and uh, uh, it started because of a Chicagoan who in 1960s is not a Rohingya, but he, he was a millionaire doing good business, and whatever he suffered, he walked all the way to uh, neighboring countries and got American visa, came here. So it is that's why it is based in Chicago. I'm a volunteer for this work, but it has some team uh, which focuses on informing and educating. You know, six years ago, nobody knew what the name Rohingya is. Burma Task Force cannot take a credit for people knowing it. Unfortunately, credit go to the genociding regime of Suchi over there in Burma. Uh, but we do uh, organize rallies, inform, educate. Uh, media initially five years ago used to call it uh, conflict between Muslims and Buddhists. Uh, and people will dismiss. I said, what conflict? Rohingyas haven't killed anybody. They haven't committed any crime. All they are, they are not asking for a country either. Burma has 20 armies, including of Kachin, who are 90% Christians, who are fighting with guns. Rohingyas never fought with guns. They're just peacefully begging for security and citizenship, which was taken away from them, at, uh, you know, in 1982. Um, tomorrow at the Federal Plaza, the Burma Task Force is going to have a rally. It starts at noon, and you've got uh, speakers, and uh, people can join you there and, and find out more information. Yeah, and uh, Representative Jan Shikoski, who has visited those camps, she will be one of the speakers as well. 
Imam Abdul Majid Malik Mujahid is founder of the Burma Action Task Force USA. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good luck at the rally tomorrow Thank in Federal you, Plaza. Thank you. After the break, film contributor Milos Dalek talks with a Swedish filmmaker Bjorn Rungi about his new film, The Wife. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Milos Stalik interviews the world's great and innovative filmmakers. Today's masterclass is a chat he had with Swedish filmmaker Bjorn Rungi about his new film, The Wife. The story centers on Joe Castleman, played by Jonathan Price. He's a successful American novelist in a long-term marriage with Joan, played by Glenn Close. After Joe gets the news that he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, his journey to Sweden to accept the award creates a marriage crisis. The wife is now showing at the Chicago-area AMC River East and the Landmark Century Cinema and uh, also in Evanston. And here's Milos Stelik. So, Bjorn, how did you come into this project? Uh, I read the script uh, four years ago. Uh, in early 2014 and uh, when I read the script uh, twice I called the producers and said that I really want to be a part of this because I could understand the script I could understand the characters and the theme of it it attached to me in a deep way so it was easy to say um, I want to be a part of this but then they said to me that uh, we want you to direct this film, but now it's up to Glenn Close to say yes or no to you. So I went to New York and uh, I ate breakfast with Glenn Close in New York. And uh, during that breakfast, we had never met each other before, but uh, we were talking about the script, of course, and the theater, because we both uh, had background in theater, in the theater life also. And we were talking about life, and suddenly we start to talk about why we were emotionally attached to the script. Uh, In that moment, we, in one way, show each other the emotional tickets into the script. And then she went silent, and then she said that, I want you to direct this film. And why were you emotionally attached to the script? You know, it's not really easy to talk about, but you can recognize things in a script like this. For me, the son, David, played by Max Irons, he was the key for me into that marriage between June and Jew. Because it's kind of a triangle, because there's Glenn Close, the wife, Jonathan Price, the husband, the novelist, and Max Irons, the son, who also wants to write, but who is being held back by a very strict and patronizing father. Yeah. And also, I think he can smell that something is not as it should be in this family. So the film is very much also about when June goes back in time on the journey to uh, Stockholm, she begins to reflect on her life. Uh, We also understand the 
there is a sort of family secret in this family. And I think the son is the one that has a smell on it. You know, as I was watching it, I kept thinking of this staying in the Swedish ethos here in the Ingmar Bergman film Cries and Whispers, where I forget which of the sisters says, this is a tissue of lies. And that phrase kind of, for me, apply to the film because it's unraveling little by little the way that this long-term marriage has been built on, first of all, sacrifice of the wife, uh, Glenn Close, and second of all, on this tissue of lies. That's interesting. I should uh, revisit that film. I haven't seen it for many years. But, of course, uh, I was also inspired by Autumn Sonata by Emma Bergman, the mother-daughter uh, theme even if it's not a mother-daughter theme in our film, but you can get inspired by films that are dealing with the relationship in a very serious and honestly way. And Emma Berman absolutely does that. Because the wife is kind of a chamber drama, because it's essentially about characters. Yeah. It's a chamber play, but it's set on a bigger stage that is the Nobel Prize world. And that's what's so good with the, the script and the film, I think, because it's not just a chamber play, but it's set in a very strange ritual, uh, Nobel Prize world. So I think that uh, contrast is also very important. So did you study the Nobel Prize ceremonies and how that ritual functions? Yeah, yeah. indeed. More in details, because uh, here in Sweden, we see, we, we have grown up with it, you know, if you are from Sweden, you have seen it on TV every year, because it was uh, something that you always uh, were sitting down with your family and watch the Nobel Prize ceremony and the dinner and so. But uh, we went into it more uh, into the details. So the award ceremony in the film is... 100% as it should be, as it is in reality. That was interesting and exciting. All when they call and what they say when they call uh, that important call in the early in the morning here, as it is in our film, because the time gap between uh, Europe and North America. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of details that's important too. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic, speaking with filmmaker Björn Runga, whose new film is called The Wife. The actors all revered you and loved working with you and said that you were an actor's director. So what does that mean? Um, it means that I take their job very seriously. Me and my team are there for them. With such an actors, you know, like Glenn Close and Jonathan Price and Kristen Slater, you have to build a sense of trust on the set. So they know that we take care of their acting energy in the best way. And when they do that, they also open up more doors for you. And they realize very fast, I imagine, that we actually took care of the acting energy in a very, very good way. So it was a great sense of trust. What does that mean, taking care of an actor's energy? In one word, to put the camera uh, where it should be to see what the actors are doing. It's very easy uh, when we talk about it, but when you come on a set, you have so many possibilities to shoot the scene, but you have to shoot it in a way that communicate what's on the paper through the actors, through the camera, to the audience 
in the end through the editing, of course, and then to the audience. But when a good actor understands that I put the camera in the right place, then you are on a good way to do a good work. So she was so sensible because I also realized that Glenn Close needs a soft light for her face. Because if you have a very bright light, something's happened with her face. And I was really attracted to find that face that I met privately. Because I think she has a marvelous face. But I couldn't see that face in many films uh, that has been done recently. So me and the photographer, uh, cinematographer Ulf Brantos, we were doing screen tests with, with a very soft light on her face. And suddenly we gave her the opportunity to use that soft light because even if she don't say anything, we understand what's going on in her head. And that's very important. And I think the light is a technical way to take care of her acting energy. And for me, you know, on the set, we investigate the scenes. So i doing a lot of takes because we collect material into the editing room. Because in the editing, we then sculpting the film to the shape the form for the film. But uh, on the set, we take so many takes and so many different emotional things just to get a, a rich emotional material into the editing. Because the portrait of the wife of the play by Glenn Close is, of course, of a woman who does not say anything and who lives and sacrifices so much. So in a way, she's silent. So in her acting, it's not just what she says and what's in the script. It's what she doesn't say. Yes. And because of that, it's important that when you read the script, you see that you has the lines in the first half of the script is very much you, her husband, uh, Jonathan Price, talking. And then you have to find out as a director and a cinematographer how to keep the tension around June, uh, Glenn Close, because she isn't saying anything. She's in the background. She's observing. She's in service for her husband. And then you have to innovate a film language that take care of her acting in the best way so the audience can follow what's happening with her. And that's why we invented this uh, very soft light and also that we are working with close-ups around the camera. I was interested in the comment that Glenn Close made about this role in which she said that to her the film was about power and the power that... Uh, Joan, the character, the wife, gives, and then finally, as she changes through the film, because she's the one character who goes through this big transformation that she finally reclaims. That's true, and she becomes visible even for herself, because she's invisible in the beginning of the film, also even for herself, I think. And that power game, I think, as soon as you put two people together... There is a sort of power game, and especially in a long marriage where they also are writers, both of them in the beginning when they started their family and their writing careers, we also understand that she's also was a talented writer back in the days. So there is, of course, a lot of power games between them, and I think that makes the drama and that makes also her journey from being invisible to be visible. 
You've done a lot of things in your career, and you have an interesting career because you make films, you do theater, you've done documentary films, you've worked for television, and you yourself write. Yeah, that's true. Why? Why, uh, why can't decide what you want to do, or you'd like to do all those things? <laughs> no, you know, uh, Sweden is a small film industry. It has a small film industry. So I like to express myself uh, in a way. I like to work with actors. And if you do one film every third year, it's too little for me. So then I went into the theater and uh, I could do stage productions. And I also could learn more about actors there. And if you don't find good scripts, okay, then I had to write scripts. So I learned myself to write screen scripts, but I also learned myself to write a stage scripts. And between a stage production and a field production, you have time to do something. And then I have ideas. And that's because I have uh, written also books about my thoughts about films. And I also wrote a novel. And I'm also writing a novel at the time now. You know, I want to be at work. Yeah, I love to work because I took every possibility to deepen my uh, skills and deepen my work, especially when it comes to work with actors. And the theater is a very good place to work with actors. And there are a lot of good theaters in Sweden. Well, not to stay with the Bergman theme, but there's a famous statement that theater was his wife and film was his mistress. So is that kind of the same similar situation for you? Emerging? Yeah. 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 Uh, in, in one way it is, but I'm so glad for this film, uh, The Wife, because it's opened up a door and it's also, there has been a lot of meeting with so gifted people. I mean, the actors to work with Glenn Close and Jonathan Price, it has been a blessed for me. And uh, also coming in contact with another world outside the Swedish film industry has been uh, like a miracle for me. So, I'm in a very good mood and hope that the mistress also will become my <laughs> wife. What do you hope that somebody coming to see the film out of nowhere and not knowing very much about it takes away from it? I think the truth is the key to healing. Even if the truth is very painful, it's worth it. And here they have no choice. So for me, the truth is the key to healing. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelik. I've been speaking with filmmaker Bjorn Runge, whose new film, starring Glenn Close, Jonathan Price, Max Irons, and Christian Slater, opens today. Thank you very much. You can see the film The Wife now showing in the Chicago area at the AMC River East 21, the landmark Century Cinema, and the Century 2012 in Evanston. Coming up after the break, dance where you can get it and where you can do it. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we show you how to get around the world without buying a plane ticket. And here to tell us how to have an international good time and make some suggestions is our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi. Good to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Where are we going first, my friend? Uh, Opa, I would say. Opa. <laughs> we're, I know we're, we're going, going to now. Greece. We're going to Greek islands, but we're also going to Greek town in Chicago. Taste of Greek town is happening this weekend, and 400 South Halstead, but they basically block off that whole part of South Halstead Street, and there will be all kinds of uh, displays of Greek types of food, family activities for kids, and uh, artists, and music, and uh, all the restaurants over there will putting be putting putting their best foot forward and turning that Halstead Street into sort of a Greek street food festival. So it will be an interesting thing to check out. All right. Taste of Greek Town. It's on Halstead Street. We're trying to cram in the last festivals of summer. And if you're cramming one in with moussaka in your mouth, it can't be bad. Exactly. Exactly. I would say yeah, even be more adventurous. Try there. There's going to be some experimental things probably going on over there. Every time I've been there, I've found some new things. Get adventurous and get beyond the moussaka and the kebab treats. I can't. So, I love moussaka. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No. <laughs> well, oh, God. Well, well, anyways, but also wanted to let you know that the summer dance we're going to the Millennium Park and the summer dance celebration in Millennium Park going on Saturday and there will be all kinds of uh, dance instructions and dances happening on the lawn there will be at the cloud gate uh, stage there will be things going on and also stuff at the Pritzker Pavilion I know you really like this event summer dance is one of the great things that happens in Chicago you get to get out there with people and dance uh, uh, on Michigan Avenue and all the other locations that they have. And this one is the big, massive end-of-the-year dance party. You can dance with lots of other people to the Bollywood dance party on uh, the Great Lawn there at Millennium Park. There's going to be a Gujarati folk dance, and there's going to be a samba dance group. It's basically all day long dancing at Millennium Park. Get to meet your fellow Chicagoans and ask them to do the Gujarati dance with you. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I that's why you should be going out there tomorrow. Now, our final and featured suggestion is for the people who maybe don't want to get out there and dance and are a little too shy but want to see great dance. Uh, we've got something, uh, a new season at the MCA. Yeah, there is a, there is a season of performances at dances uh, that are coming uh, to the MCA, global dances, but also with working with Chicago-inspired uh, companies, dance companies. And uh, my friend, uh, Yola, Yolanda Kershak, uh, who is the head of the performance uh, over there at the MCA and goes out globally and searches out for ideas uh, for over there, is our guest tonight talking about that. Hey, Yolanda, nice to meet you. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, tell us something about uh, the Chicago Dance Makers Forum, which is, is, is driving this thing. Yes. Well, the, the mini festival that starts tonight called Share Out would not be possible with Chicago Dance Makers Forum. It has nurtured for 15 years now uh, local choreographers to go on inner journeys and to also advance in the dance field. So last year, uh, I was privileged to be part of the, the panel that announced the six lab artists and 
and what people are going to be seeing in the next two weekends are six world premieres by six Chicago-based dance makers and their inner journeys that oftentimes relate to issues that concern the whole world. So there's a nice connectivity. And this is all taking place at the MCA? Yes. Uh, Interestingly, uh, different dancers uh, use different platforms. So a couple of performances tonight are in the theater. Um, There's dance happening in the back and also the front plaza and also in the MCA's commons. (laughs) Um, Give us a sample of what is going on here and some of the uh, artists who are performing here. Well, one of the uh, people making a a world premiere of a new work is Yoshinojo Fujima, who is a master in classical Japanese dance. And for a number of years, I've been working with uh, her for projects that involve the bridge between heritage forms and contemporary experimentation, often involving uh, jazz musicians from Chicago, like Edward Wilkerson and Tatsu Aoki. So she will be creating a new work that we're going to be seeing tonight. And also um, Joshua Ishman, who uh, is exploring um, the idea of color and how people relate to the word black, Uh, specifically from a very Chicago experience, but also I find interesting in how uh, the idea of meaning changes by going outside the U.S. For instance, Joshua, his tour to places like Bulgaria uh, and South Africa. All right, that sounds really fascinating. I don't know how you have that in dance. (laughs) What do these things end up looking like? Well, you know, what's really interesting about dance is that it's prior to our gaining of knowledge of any particular language, we look at patterns, right? We study other people's ways of expressing and communicating, and dance is extraordinary in that way. So it also encourages us as the viewer to find meaning in what we're seeing. The beauty of this festival is that it uses new movement vocabulary. It is also a way to experiment with things like poetry. There will be um, poets as part of Joshua's work. Um, Yoshinojo also works with video and uh, live music. So it really is, it starts with dance, but in a way, it's emblematic of what the season at MCA has always been, which is about nurturing the process and the creativity and how people relate on our own ways and create meaning in it. Yeah, and you're having something over at the Sculpture Garden, uh, and it's called A House Unbuilt. Yeah, A House Unbuilt is a company um, that Victoria Bradford, one of the lab artists, uh-huh. uh, founded a few years ago, and the process is fascinating. The last um, four Sundays they have been rehearsing, and in a way the performance began at that time. They uh, Victoria's project is actually going to be starting tonight and then continue by going to different towns following the Mississippi River. Oh, I see. And again, it's the connectivity between Chicago, people moving, uh, following a river, and also the migration paths. And she'll be performing tonight, 6 to 9 p.m., and then again tomorrow afternoon at 2 to 5 p.m. So she's taking this on the road up and down the Mississippi River. Yeah, literally the company of runners, it's a relay team, so to speak, um, arrive (laughs) to different communities, but they also spend time and respond and have a relationship with the communities, and it's following the Mississippi. Well, <laughs> that is that. I, that's kind of mind blowing. 
<laughs> it how is. much time are they going to spend doing this if you're running up you and know, down it's, Mississippi? You know, it's a, it's a project that uh, unfolds over the next year. But the beauty of it starting at DMCA is that we're uh, one of the largest cities closest to the watershed to the where the Mississippi begins. So it's beautiful because in a way she's bringing the Mississippi River to the MCA grounds tonight. And you can see that in the performance because they are, the performers are showing the, the rigor, the labor of the river going up and down the stairways. I think you get the metaphor. All right. That sounds really fascinating. Yolanda, um, you have what, what I call one of the coolest jobs in Chicago, <laughs> one of the jobs that would anybody who's interested in the global art scene would be interested in. And uh, tell us a little bit about what you do and what your approach to what you do is. Oh, well, thank you. You know, I've had the joy of working at the MCA for a number of years now. And I've always been fascinated about the experience of people moving. I myself chose Chicago many years ago. I'm an immigrant. And how um, meaning is formed and reformed because of our experience of uh, encountering the other. Um, and people choosing Chicago as their new home uh, has always been deeply meaningful for me. The, why, why did you choose Chicago? I chose Chicago for uh, a degree in liberal democracy <laughs> at the University of Chicago. <laughs> so that has been a lens for me to uh, originally follow. Originally from Spain. I'm originally from Spain. Catalan. Catalana. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And, um, and uh, you know, just the idea of how culture is the ultimate connectivity, but it also is difficult Right. It, it, yeah. it creates um, discourse. Yeah. It creates uh, an understanding of another and also difficulties. Culture is, is a way that we can uh, identify personally, but also relate to something greater than ourselves and importantly, greater than outside the U.S. Chicago is a flourishing city in the Midwest, but it also has many, many people in Chicago living yeah. Um, dual nationalities and and having uh, multiple experiences and it's I think the museum excels at advancing the idea that contemporary culture is about the local connectivity to something greater outside in the world. What do you think about what's happening now in this country? It seems like people are being driven apart a lot harder than we're coming together. Uh, if if do you think culture can uh, win? Uh, I think culture prevails. I think that we're experiencing right now something that is a, a defining moment for the for the experience of being American. Um, and actually, these six artists, for instance, right now, because Chicago Dance Makers Forum supported their inner exploration, they're also destined to be uh, creating a defining portrait um, that will be um, understood later in the future about what their relationship is now. So um, in a way, I think that my work as a curator is also to encourage people of why their work that I have found compelling will have meaning and uh, nurture something that also is being investigated and considered in Chicago. So making that connection between Chicago and these people outside the U.S. is deeply satisfying, but it also acknowledges what Chicago is about and how, crea how creative Chicago can be. Tell us a little bit about what's coming up uh, in the coming months uh, for the performance side of the MCA. Thank you. So, you know, uh, 
All, the next two weekends are all about dance mm-hmm. in October. There's a remarkable artist that I have I met three years ago now who is originally from Rwanda. She's currently living in Marseille, making a life there. Um, her name is Dorte Munyaneza. She's doing her Chicago premiere of a work um, that is the result of interviews that she made with women when she returned to Rwanda. Wow. After having uh, relocated with her family. She's an extraordinary artist. Uh, this is just the beginning of what I think is going to be an important journey. Um, she took a quick visit to Chicago last year. We'll be returning next year for a residency that is supported by the MCA, where she will spend a significant amount of time um, meeting artists, uh, spending time on the South Side with youth, um, and in a way... Uh, I think defining the idea that roots are not just in one place, but it's more like a vine where we uh, exist on multiple places, and the Absolutely. Chicago is one of those locations. Yeah. So um, her performance ends up looking like, a, or her thing is video mostly? Is that what, what it would look like? Or? Right. So Dorote is interesting because she is a writer. She's a performer. I would say that if you came up with a one word, it would be theater. She collaborates with a musician and a visual artist based from South Africa. Wow. So it's staged beautifully. She's uh, performing with a punk rocker um, based out of Portland, <laughs> Oregon. It's the well, ultimate collaboration. <laughs> well, I, I would really well. look forward to that. I, we should have her back. We should have <laughs> her in when she comes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and congratulations on what's going on this weekend and uh, the coming weeks here with the Chicago Dance Makers Forum. Yolanda Kursak is curator of performances at the MCA. We'll go out on a little bit of the music that Joshua L. Ishman is doing in the in the performance. And have a great weekend, Nari Safavi. I hope to see you again next week. Thank you for having me. Monday on Worldview, we'll talk about the most trafficked animal in the world, the pangolin. Uh, Hope you can join us Monday for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Vivian Garcia-Blanco, Shazmin Hussein for production assistance, and thanks to Shelley Steffens for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.